May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Many, 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 many years ago, Bonnie and I did the Bethel Bible study course. It was in our first two years of being married, and it was a great thing to do together. Didn't agree with all the theology, but what it did do was, particularly with the First Testament, it walked us through the story, how it all hung together, where Abraham fits with people like David and Solomon and where the Exodus came and where the exile came and then where all the books fitted within that whole story. It made a lot more sense once we'd done that. We spent two years working through the whole Bible and the theme of the course was a summary of Genesis 12, the first time that Abram and Sarah hear the promise of children. They were to be blessed. They and all their descendants were to be blessed. Not just blessed, but they were to be blessed to be a blessing. A blessing to the whole of creation. And the course writer suggested that the whole of the biblical story could be understood in light of that. Blessed to be a blessing. I'm sure that had a profound effect on my understanding of the biblical story and I'm sure it comes out of my preaching still today. I have talked about it more than once uh, and I'm sure it comes through in my preaching even when I haven't planned for it to come through. Blessed to be a blessing. It is the lens through which I understood, I understand our reading today from Genesis 15 where Abram again hears the problem, the promise of children. So Ishmael hasn't been born yet, Isaac's a long way off, uh, and he can't see any hope of children on the horizon. This is not a version of the story that we uh, like to spend much time on, because, well, it's pretty gruesome. And, uh, and so I think generally we tend to go with one of the other two uh, versions or one of the other two times that Abram and Sarah hear the story, hear the, hear the promise, uh, and we kind of leave this one out. But every three years, on the second Sunday in Lent, we are forced to take note of it. And it is gruesome. All those animals chopped in half. And it is tempting to get caught up in that and to miss the point of what the story is about. This is, I think, an astoundingly important story for the whole of the arc of the biblical story. It is, at face value, a reaffirmation of the promise the covenant made in Genesis 12. But this time it is much less about the actual promise and it is much more about God's commitment to that promise. So what's going on here, we often read as a sacrifice. Animals are killed and God is involved, so that must be some kind of religious ceremony uh, of sacrifice. But in fact, it's not a sacrifice. Uh, well, it's not a religious ceremony as such. I mean, everything was a religious ceremony. God was involved in everything that anyone did. But this was actually much more about a way that two people would seal 
uh, really important solemn agreement. So it's a cultural practice called cutting a covenant. And so uh, somebody from uh, Working Preacher uh, has uh, talked about this in his commentary. And he talks about Justin Michael Reed, in fact, is the person. So he talks about how the instructions that God gives are for the type of agreement where humans ensure their obligations with a symbolic gesture where by treading through a path of blood between the animals or an animal cut in half, a person cutting a covenant symbolically asserts that they will keep their word lest their body be severed like the animal whose blood they walk through. Essentially what God is saying here is if I don't keep this covenant, I will die. That's how committed God was to this, the death of God if the covenant is not fulfilled. So this story is much less about what is promised and much more about God's commitment to that promise, God's faithfulness to that promise. And it's important to know that God's faithfulness here is not dependent on what Abram does. I mean, before this, God, uh, Abram is said to believe what God says and God reckons that as righteousness to him. And that's certainly one way we can translate the Hebrew. But in fact, the Hebrew is enormously vague and it could be the other way around that God believes what Abram says and Abram counts that as righteousness to God. The Hebrew just has he in there. And so you have to work out which he refers to which party of that agreement. And the translators have generally gone with what Paul said in Romans, uh, because that's what the Septuagint said. But actually, the Hebrew, you can translate either way. And both ways make sense uh, in terms of the words and theologically. So this is not dependent on what God does, on what Abram does at all. In fact, during the actual ceremony, Abram is fast asleep with a in a terrible darkness which has descended upon him as the divine comes. So his actions are secondary to this. This is entirely about God's actions and God's commitment, no matter what Abram does. This divine faithfulness is at the center of everything that happens for the rest of the biblical story. God's utter commitment to this promise. It is at the heart of Paul's theology. A few years ago we spent some time looking at Romans and at the heart of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans is Paul talking about how Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's faithfulness to the covenants. Blessed to be a blessing. That through Jesus, humanity is restored and creation is renewed. And God's faithfulness is at the heart of how the gospel writers also construct their story of Jesus. Both talking about, how, talking about Jesus' trust in God's faithfulness, which is made very clear in John's gospel, but it's at the heart of what Luke talks about as well. 
but also Jesus being the way that we can trust God's faithfulness. So last week, we spent some time looking at uh, the story of Jesus being tested in the wilderness on how he will live as the beloved son. And we can see this theme of trusting God's faithfulness right at the centre of the story. So in each of these tests, because Jesus trusts God's faithfulness, he succeeds in each of those tests. So, for example, he trusts God to supply his needs even though he's been fasting for 40, 40 days. And he doesn't need to turn stones to bread because he trusts God's faithfulness. And he trusts God's faithfulness and doesn't need to rely on human power to be the beloved son, which is what this picture is about, being shown all the kingdoms of the world. And if you just worship me, you can have all that power and glory. And he is able to say, I don't need to do that because he trusts God's faithfulness. And then the last one, he trusts God in the way offered in the passage from Isaiah, which he had read in Nazareth, and does not need the glory that the tester offers him by leaping off the highest pinnacle and being rescued by angels, which would be a pretty cool thing, really. I mean, you'd get lots of acclaim and glory if you did that. You wouldn't have to prove yourself as the Son of God anymore. But also he knew that wasn't the way of the Son of God, and he trusted God's faithfulness and was able to go, that is not the way that I will live out being God's beloved Son. And so this week again, Jesus trusts God's faithfulness. Even when these Pharisees, who are either genuine in their concern for Jesus, or are just in uh, cahoots with Herod, and you can read the story either way, and people do read the story either way, so I'll leave it up to you to work out which way you think it goes. Uh, Jesus trusts God's faithfulness. And because he trusts God's faithfulness, he is able to remain committed to the road to Jerusalem. The road that he has been on since chapter 9, when he turned his face to Jerusalem and began the journey to Jerusalem. So this is part of that story, Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And he remains committed to that and to, committed to all that lies ahead on this road. He trusts God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is at the heart of the story. And we can hear God's faithfulness in the despair over Jerusalem. Jerusalem is more than a city here. Jerusalem is the city where heaven and earth kiss in the temple. It is the place where God's will is done on earth as in heaven. It is a thin place symbolizing God's determined commitment to humanity, God's faithfulness to the covenant with Abram and Sarai. It is also the place where the people of God were to live out being blessed to be a blessing. But it was also a symbol of humanity's deep reluctance to desire for anything more than the blessing. We kind of stop there. We like 
being blessed without ever thinking about, well, it's a harsh call, but too often we kind of stop with the blessing and we don't think about the next bit. Blessed to be a blessing. And that leads to the heartfelt lament. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killer of the prophets, abuser of the messengers of God, how often I've longed to gather your children, gather your children like a hen, her brood safe under her wings, but you refused and turned away. I've only ever seen a hen like this once in my life, and I was on retreat, and I looked up and there was a hen with her wings out like a pyramid, and I thought, that's a very weird thing. And she stared at me, and I looked at her, and she stared at me, and then she decided I was safe and lifted her wings, and all these little chickens ran out from underneath. But they were all under the wings, like there. You can see the little feet, but the wings out like a pyramid around them, protecting them. It's a wonderful image. This symbol had become, Jerusalem had become a symbol both of the promise and of what happens when we are unable to trust in God's faithfulness. And as a result, if we go back to last week, choose different responses to the tests when we are tested. So last week I finished by inviting us to reflect on what is it that we give thanks for? And what has been life-giving for us over the last while? And this week I want to add, how have we experienced God's faithfulness over the last couple of years? And what does that mean, God's faithfulness for us? And how does that help us live thankfully and in more life-giving ways? I'm now going to show a little video. It comes from the Diocese of Wellington. It's uh, got one of their bishops in it. Uh, it's actually a video that's part of the Lenten study that hopefully we will start today, or at least work out how we might start today. And um, it's about six minutes, and it's about how we pay attention to the divine action in our life and what we do with that. So, uh, hopefully this works. It didn't work at 8 o'clock. Um, so... Fingers crossed, and then I'll put the questions up again and give us some time to talk about those questions, and we'll skip the creed.